Let's take our Bibles again, church, and turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 1. To Hebrews chapter 1, as we are taking a break from our normal exposition through the Gospel of Luke to focus on this mini-series on the nature and person of Christ, because that is who we celebrate at this time of year. We rejoice in who he is and what he has done and all that he has accomplished. Our focus today is going to be just the first half of verse 3, but I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 4, so follow along with me in Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to guide our minds and our hearts. Father God, we are grateful. Lord, you have carried us through, Lord, another week with our families, at our work, Lord, with our loved ones. You've provided for our needs according to your riches and glory. You've granted us, Father God, wisdom and, and grace and mercy through our times of triumph and our times of challenge. We come here this morning, Father God, not only out of a deep and abiding sense of thankfulness as your children who are recipients of all these blessings, we come here, Father God, to worship, to magnify you, to ascribe praise and glory and honor to our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Lead us now in the study of your word. Guide our minds and hearts to behold and celebrate all that Jesus Christ is for us, in us, and through us. In his name we pray. Amen. What are your qualifications? Probably many of us in this room have heard that question before right? And we would agree in many instances that it is important to know that a person is qualified for a job that we are going to entrust to them. Many of us in this room, we might have an Uncle Bob, an Uncle Bob who's a very handy person. Uncle Bob works down as a, as a manager down at the local plant. He's got a lot of life experience. And so if you need a guy to put in a new ceiling fan, or if you need a guy to help you cut down a tree that's dead, or if you need someone to drop you off at the airport, then Bob's your uncle, right? Uncle Bob is the guy you can call. But if you need the transmission on your car rebuilt, or if you need someone to advise you on where to invest your 401k, or if you need brain surgery, Uncle Bob is not qualified, right? For these things, you want a master mechanic or, or a certified investment counselor or a highly trained and experienced neurosurgeon. And so that kind of brings us to the question this morning. 
A question that our text answers. What qualifications are required in the one who would save people from condemnation and give them eternal life? And the answer that the text gives us this morning is that God himself is the only one that can meet the requirements that God has established to redeem humanity. The first part of verse 3 as we come to this this morning is the heart of of this prologue of the book of Hebrews. And as we move from verse 2 to verse 3, notice that there is a change of subject from the Father to the Son. The verses we looked at last week, verses 1 and 2, speak of the Father, of how God the Father spoke in these ways in the past and now in these last days has spoken to us in the Son. But now as we move into verse 3, there's a focus on Christ. And what we see in these verses is that Christ is not only uniquely qualified to be the revealer of God, he is also uniquely qualified to be the mediator of the new covenant. That's what we learn here this morning. And so let's go first and speak of Christ's light. That's my first point this morning, Christ's light. The first part of verse 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, radiance is a a beautiful thing, right? We speak on the wedding day of how radiant the bride is and and as she she comes down the aisle to her groom. We speak of of the radiance of, of beautiful lights at this time of year. What's interesting, though, is the Greek word for radiance is unique here. This is the only place that this word is used in the entire New Testament, even in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a very unique word that means to shine forth and emit brightness. And what is key here is that in reference to Christ, it describes Christ as emitting the very glory of God. Christ is not merely a reflection of the glory of God. He is one who emits the very glory, the very brightness of the Father's glory. And and we have numerous texts in Scripture that refer to the light of God. If we go all the way back to the very beginning on the first day of creation, we see that God revealed the visible light of his glory when he said, let there be light. Remember that the sun, the moon, and the stars were not created until day four. And so what was this light that God gave visible manifestation to on the first day of creation? Well, it is the light of his glorious presence. The divine light of glory is the visible radiance of God's perfections. The Jews even developed a word for this. Again, this is not a word that we see in Scripture, but this is how the Jews described it. They described this as the Shekinah glory of God. When we continue on in Scripture, we see, again, God always described in terms of light. In Exodus 24, verse 16, it says, And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And that idea is even repeated later here in the book of Hebrews, where it says, Our God is a consuming fire. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2 say, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain. 
Even if we go all the way to the end, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, when it describes our final glorification, it says there in verses 4 and 5 that there will come a day when we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And so throughout the Bible, in so many places, we see God's own splendor and glory being described in terms of a visible light. But we also want to understand that God's light also carries many meanings in metaphor. If we also look, go back to Scripture, we see that light also represents God's utter and inherent righteousness. The fact that God is absolutely pure, perfectly good, and immutably holy. His light is the essence of his, his being shining forth in moral perfection. Psalm 50, verses 1 and 2. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising to the sun of, from the, of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. And 1 John 1, 5. Again, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So light represents God's righteousness. Light also represents God's perfect truth. Embodied in and revealed as his word. His truth reveals his person and the path of obedience that he has set before his people. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 105, says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is why Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as, a, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so light also represents God's truth. And finally, light represents spiritual life. Life is light and light is life. When we come to many verses in Scripture, Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 56, 13, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. All of these Scriptures together, brothers and sisters, teach us that there is a self-existent life and light which belongs to God. As our creator, he is distinct from the creation. He is unique. And this is, uh, theologians speak of this, this is a very uh, uh, theological term, speak of God's aseity or his self-existence. It literally means the isness of God. Prior to creation, all that existed was God. He is pure, self-existent being. He is all-sufficient, unchanging, immutable, full of life. He is the great I am, everlasting to everlasting. In contrast to creation, he is being where all of creation is becoming. We had a beginning. We did not always exist. We are constantly changing, meaning constantly becoming. And the only reason we exist now is because God sustains us. He wills us to exist. But he is self-sufficient life. He is not dependent on anything or anyone outside himself. We are dependent creatures. As a matter of fact, we will die in just a few minutes if we don't have oxygen. We will die in a few days if we do not have water. We will die in a few weeks if we do not have food. 
There are so many ways in which we are dependent, frail creatures, but not the Lord. He is light and he is life. This is the psalmist trying to capture this in Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Now, why did I go through all that exploration of the idea of light and God being light in Scripture? Because all of that bears on exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here at the beginning of verse 3. Just as God himself is robed in light, resplendent in glory, and the ultimate source of righteousness, truth, and life, Christ is all of that in the same way. Christ is that same fullness. He is the radiance of the glory of God. As the second member of the Trinity, it is his role to be the one made visible in the incarnation to shine forth the brightness, the radiance of the glory of the Godhead. And this is what the Apostle John captures so well in his gospel. John 5, verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 8, 12, and again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And, of course, John 1, 14, a verse we've already read this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. As the second member of the Trinity, Jesus is the eternally emanating radiance of the Godhead. As God incarnate, he perfectly reveals the brightness and the splendor and the glory of God in creation. In Christ, the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men and women. That's what this is teaching us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of God comes to us through the face of Jesus Christ. Now normally, at the end of a point, that's where I stop and I give application But I've really got to continue because my first and second points both go together as we explore this text, and I need to apply them together. So stay with me as we move into the second phrase, okay? My second point. We talked about Christ's light. Now let's talk about Christ's identity because these two things are inseparable. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Again, the writer of Hebrews, again, uses a term here that appears only here in the entire New Testament. Exact imprint is actually a word going back into the Greek that describes how coins were minted, right? They would would smelt silver, they would smelt gold, they would get it pure, they would pour it into a mold, and they would bring a heavy iron stamp down upon it, pound it with a mallet to make an imprint on, on that piece of metal. Well, that's the idea here. And the Greek word for nature is another large word that, it, that denotes basically essential substance and real essence. When we take these two terms together, there's only two words here in the Greek. This phrase that means that the Son of God bears the very stamp of God's nature. He is the exact representation of God's real being. Jesus is 
God. It is the perfect and full embodiment of God. And that is why to see the Son is to see the Father. Jesus explained this to Philip in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's that straightforward. The wording and structure of this verse in Hebrews demonstrates very clearly that the Son is uniquely qualified to be the full and final manifestation of God. We are meant to understand that the person of Jesus Christ fulfills a salvation historical role in revealing the person and nature of the Father because he himself is God. All that Yahweh is by nature, Jesus is by nature. Jesus and the Father are separate persons. That is why we see, even through the Gospels, Jesus speaking of his Father, relating to his Father, praying to his Father, and the Father revealing through the Son. They are separate persons, but they are of the same singular essence or being. And of course, what we're referencing here is the Trinity. The word Trinity does not appear anywhere in Scripture, but it is a theological term designating something that is clearly taught in Scripture. Trinity comes from the words triunity, meaning that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. One God Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triunity, a trinity. That is something that this verse very strongly points us towards and teaches. Why is the doctrine of the trinity so important? Because the nature of Christ is essential to our salvation. Understand that if you understand nothing else in this text. The nature of Christ is essential to our salvation. God is a holy God, and he stands, his standard is moral perfection. Because he is perfectly good and righteous, he must condemn all sin and wickedness and everyone who falls short of that standard of perfection. Every human being is born in sin and is by nature a sinner. We are not capable of moral perfection, nor do we even desire it. Therefore, we all stand condemned in God's sight as children of wrath. Let me say that again, just so we understand. If you are within the sound of my voice, and you have not personally trusted in Christ, then you are a child of wrath by nature and by choice. Apart from Christ, we all stand condemned in God's sight, and God would be just to send every single one of us to hell. So if anyone would be saved, God must do it. The Bible makes it very clear that we cannot save ourselves, that none of us, by our own good lives, our own good choices, our own good works, that none of us can meet God's standard of perfection because no matter how good we try to be, we will always fall short. If anyone would be saved, God must do it. But the means of our salvation would have to satisfy both the demands of his justice as well as accomplish his purpose of grace. Let me say that again so we understand. 
The means of our salvation would have to satisfy both the demands of his justice as well as accomplishing his purpose of redemption. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ does. Jesus took on flesh to fulfill the Father's purpose of redemption. Because Jesus was fully man, he could serve as our substitute. He could be tempted. But where we fell short, he lived a sinless life. Where we deserve to die, he died in our place. And because Jesus is fully God, he could be perfectly holy. He could drink the full cup of God's wrath for sin. He could defeat death and rise again. And so he is fully man and fully God. And therefore, as our risen Savior, he is perfectly suited to mediate God to men and men to God. He is our perfect intercessor. Now, this is important, brothers and sisters, because over the course of church history, there have been so many wrong views of the nature of God, so many specifically denials of the Trinity. You have modalism, which is popular in the Oneness Pentecostal Church. It says there's only one God, only one person. He just appears to us in three different forms. Sometimes God appears as the Father. Sometimes he appears as the Son. Sometimes he appears as the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's, there's not one God and three persons. There's one God who just puts on different outfits. There's Arianism, which denies the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. It says that you have God the Father, who's the one and only eternal divine God, and, and the Son and the Holy Spirit were created before the rest of creation, but they're not equal to the Father. They were created, and, and therefore they are not of the same nature. You have subordinationism, which says that the Son, Jesus Christ, is eternal and divine, not created, but he's still not quite equal with the Father. He's inferior and subordinate in being and in attributes to God the Father. You also have adoptionism. That's another big word that says, basically, you remember when Jesus Christ was baptized and the heavens opened and God spoke and the dove descended on him, that up until that point, Jesus was just a common man who, who lived life and, and, and grew up just like any other person. But on that day of his baptism, that's when God adopted Jesus, if you will, and, and gave him supernatural powers. And then finally, you just simply have tritheism. Those who struggle with the idea of there being one, one person, they basically come down and say, basically, there's not just one God. There are three separate persons who are fully and equally God. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's no unity between them. They're not one. They're three separate. Therefore, there are three gods. You have to see that just this first half of verse 3 in Hebrews 1 blows all of those ideas away. It shatters them. It obliterates them. Every single one of these from this verse and so many other verses in Scripture are shown to be absolutely false. Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And this, these two phrases taken together, this is what brings us to so many beautiful applications. I, I, as I was dwelling on this, meditating on this this week, I thought, you know what? I, I could spend another six sermons just talking about all the beautiful applications that flow about this. I'm not going to do that. Let's just talk about two of them. First of all, let's just consider the love of God. Think of the love of God here, brothers and sisters. From the very beginning, 
God was not someone who created the the universe, who created the world, who created Adam and Eve and just stepped back and was distant. From the very beginning, God personally walked with Adam and Eve in the perfection of the garden. Even after they sinned against him, God sent angels and prophets and earthly kings as he continued to speak to his people, to lead his people. But remember this, when it came time to accomplish his, his eternal purpose of redemption, God did not send a mere ambassador, a mere representative, another human prophet that was somehow of a higher rank than the others. No, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God himself took on human flesh to identify with humanity and to save us from our sins. The King of kings and the Lord of lords took on human flesh and came to this world and even allowed himself to be treated like a common criminal by his very own people so that he could redeem sinners like you and I from death and deadness of soul. The Holy One of heaven bore our sins so that we could be forgiven. By the sacrifice of the Son of God, we have been made sons of God. That's love. You know, we, we continue as a culture to be so infatuated with, with love, right? We write novels about it. We write plays about it. We produce movies about it. You know, everything from its sappiness, like the Hallmark movies at this time of year, to the sacrifice of it. Celebrated in our art and in our productions where we see these themes of true love being demonstrated in in one laying down their life for another. But do you understand, brothers and sisters, even though we as humanity, cross-culturally, even as we give so much attention to earthly love, we need to understand that compared to the love of God in Christ Jesus... All the love that we talk about and enjoy down here is merely a faint echo of the divine love. Indeed, the love that we are privileged to experience here on earth in human terms is given by God to point us to the ultimate love that is his and that he has demonstrated through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you love someone? Do you have someone in your life that you know, I would lay down my life for them? For most of us, we would say, that's our our child, our children. Maybe you have a, a very dear and close friend that, yes, I would give my life for them if I had to. Maybe, maybe it is a parent. Maybe it's another loved one. But have you felt that? Have you experienced that? I want you to understand. That is just an echo of the divine that is meant to point you to the glory of the Savior. That is given to point you to Jesus Christ. Because in Him, because of Him, we know true love. Divine love. A love that is uncorrupted by sin. You see, all of our love here on earth, what we experience even as husband and wife, even in our most intimate relationships, it's corrupted by our remaining sin. Even as Christians... Is there any Christian in the room that would raise their hand and say they have an absolutely perfect marriage where nothing ever goes wrong, where there's never a crossword, where there's never a disagreement? Anyone? Anyone? And trust me, I'm not raising my hand. 
In one sense, not in one sense. The truth of it is, in this life, humanly speaking, we will only ever know corrupted love. But the love of Christ is not corrupted. The love of Christ is perfect. And can you imagine what it will be like to be in his presence and experience an uncorrupted love? That is what Jesus Christ has given us. Secondly, the Christ who is God incarnate, the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature, the one who is the way, the truth, and life, remember that Jesus Christ is also our light. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you understand specifically you, Christian? You have the light of life in you. And yet even as we think about that, it's stunning to stop and consider how often we as Christians still get stuck in the dark again, right? We still get stuck in the dark again. Some of us struggle with bitterness and unforgiveness. We've been hurt by others. And we are rehearsing and reliving particular hurts or offenses in our minds and hearts over and over again. And that offense might have happened a few days ago. That offense might have happened a few months ago. That offense might have happened a few years ago. But we're in unforgiveness and bitterness. And, and, and we get anxious in our hearts and minds every time we think about it. And if we know that we're going to encounter this person who, who hurt us, who responded to us in the wrong way, we get very twisted up inside. That kind of bitterness is darkness. There are others of us who are wrestling with self-pity. We had expectations from certain people in certain situations we had expectations, maybe it's from a family member. We had expectations from a certain job or a boss. Expectations from our church, a coworker, a spouse, a neighbor. And in some way, these persons haven't met our expectations. So we are disappointed. We're angry. We're blaming people for not being what we needed them to be. We're pulling back into loneliness and we're casting ourselves as a casualty of other people's indifference. Brothers and sisters, that kind of self-pity is really just a manifestation of pride. And it is a darkness. Then there's lust for another example. Lust is so pervasive in our culture, and honestly, it's far too pervasive in the church. Rather than having self-control, your, your urges are controlling you. You know the truth. You know that Christ requires your purity, but your heart has become calloused and enslaved. You swing back and forth from shame and grief over your sin to, to self-justification on the other side because you think your physical needs take priority and your physical needs aren't being met and therefore you feel justified in indulging them in an ungodly way. So you surrender to your lust rather than fighting for your purity. And every click takes you deeper and deeper into the darkness. 
You know, the list could go on and on. Our anger, our spiritual apathy, our materialism, our want of control. Oh, that's a big one, right? And I only say that because too often I see it in my own heart. I want control. But all of these things are things that pull us into darkness. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that Jesus is the very light and glory of God that causes our darkness to flee? He is the one who releases us from bitterness and unforgiveness by reminding us how much he has forgiven us and by enabling us to share his heart of compassion for those who have hurt us. You may think to yourself, I I could never love the person who did this to me. Really? Christ loves you after all you did to him? Christ is that light that frees us, sets us free from the darkness of bitterness and unforgiveness. He brings light to our darkness by giving us the grace and strength also to keep our expectations in check. By helping us to see that self-pity is nothing more than that form of pride. He leads us to seek him to meet our needs. You see, expectations lead us astray when we expect other people to be for us what only Christ can be for us. And so Christ in his light helps us to see that. He leads us by his light to seek him to meet our needs. And in turn, he changes our hearts so that we will be able to hold the needs of others with higher regard than our own. Christ also brings light into the darkness of our lust by setting us free from slavery to our flesh. Christ tells us that we don't have to hide in shame because he already knows the depths of our sin. And if we are in Christ, regardless of the depths that we have descended to in our lust, if we are in Christ, he knows. He has not abandoned you. He has not turned from you just because you have emerged yourself in filth. He loves you even now and holds out to you forgiveness and grace in his name. Whatever darkness you are struggling with, Christ is your light. So turn from that darkness into his light now and know his tender mercy and healing and love. And to come back to what I was saying earlier, if you are here today and you are without Christ, I want you to understand without him, darkness is all you will ever know for all of eternity. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, fulfilling the law of God, dying on the cross in the sinner's place, rising from the grave on the third day. This is light and life, and it is held out to you by the Savior. Believe in him, and you shall be saved. He is the only way of salvation. That takes me to my final point, Christ's power. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This final phrase reminds us that Jesus was not only the active agent in creation, he is the active agent in our preservation. 
The Greek word that's translated as upholds also means to sustain. But there's a nuance to this term that means a bit more here. You see, Jesus, y'all remember the pictures of the Greek god Atlas and you know how he's in that pose where he's bearing the whole weight of the world on his shoulders? That's not what is being pictured here. Jesus is not like the Greek god Atlas, passively bearing the dead weight of the world on his shoulders. Not only is Jesus actively willing everything that is made to continue existing, he is also carrying all things to their appointed end, their goal. In other words, Jesus does not just cause creation to exist for the sake of itself. He causes it to exist for his own sake, for his own glorious purpose. Jesus exercises a providential government of the universe, which is a function of God himself. So his power to create is also the power to preserve, the power to control, and the power to destroy and bring to an end in accordance with his own sovereign desires. Now for us to grasp the scope of what this phrase means, I want to give us a a short science lesson on the size of things, right? This is, this is how we illustrate this point. I'm going to require some of you to go back to your high school chemistry class, right? Think about this with me, okay? If I were to ask you what is the most basic unit of matter in the universe, you would likely think back to those, you know, old chemistry class lessons, and you would say the atom. The atom is the most basic unit of matter in the universe. Good guess. But do you know that even though we cannot see an atom up close, we still do not have that ability, even with our best microscopes, even with electron microscopes, I mean these amazing microscopes, we still do not have the ability to have an up-close look at an atom. Do you know that an, in, an individual atom is a world unto itself? Think about this with me. Y'all remember the, the little things you used to play with in chemistry class? You had the little nucleus and little sticks come out that are holding electrons in place. You remember the diagrams? In actuality, if you were able to enlarge a single atom to the size of a football stadium, right? If you could take one single atom and enlarge it to the size of a football stadium, do you know the nucleus would only be about the size of a marble? A marble. And do you know that all the mass in an atom is in the nucleus? That's where the protons and the neutrons are. And even with all our scientific advancements, to this day, we still cannot explain all the strong nuclear forces that are inside the, the nucleus of an atom. We cannot fully explain those. And do you know how many atoms are just in the world? Like, let's make it simple. How many atoms are in one eight-ounce glass of water? Just eight ounces of water. How many atoms are in there? 2.4 times 10 to the 25th power. That's how many atoms are just in eight ounces of water. How many atoms do you think are in your body? Are in this building? Our city? Our globe? Christ sustains every single one. Let's go the other way. You know, science fiction would tend to make us think that our universe is easily traversable, right? 
Because in science fiction, you know, they have things like light speed and, and wormholes and stargates and everything where you can go from one side of the galaxy to the other and you interact with all these different alien species and travel and all these different things. But nothing could be further from the truth. Do you know that the observable, and this is just what we can see with our best telescopes, the observable universe has a diameter of about 93 billion light years. Scientists estimate that there are two trillion galaxies, two trillion galaxies just in the observable universe. There are dwarf galaxies that are small and only have about 100 million stars in them, and there are supergiant galaxies that have about 100 trillion stars in them. Our Milky Way galaxy kind of falls right in the middle. It's a medium-sized galaxy. There are about 100 billion stars just in the Milky Way. There are also almost 4,000 different solar systems just in our Milky Way galaxy. And after our sun, our sun is 92 million miles away. The next closest star to us is Proxima Centauri, which is 4.3 light years away, or just over 25 trillion miles. The next nearest star to us is 25 trillion miles away, and with our current technology, if we wanted to travel to that star, to that solar system, it would take us between six and 7,000 years minimum just to get near it at our current technology. So think about the size of the universe that I've just described to you, and then understand Jesus personally vitally, perfectly sustains every particle of it. Right? You heard me talking about the atom. How many atoms are just in a glass of water? How many atoms are maybe in your person, this building, our globe? Think of how much of this is in the universe. And it is all upheld by the powerful word of our Christ. From the smallest subatomic particle to the full expanse of the universe, Jesus upholds it all by the word of his power. He speaks and it is so. And, and this is just a personal theory. This is not scripture. This is just a personal theory. I think God has placed us on one small speck of a planet within the vastness of the universe to give us a living picture of who we are compared to his infiniteness. This is why scripture says in Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26, God says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see the stars who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not one. 1 Kings 8.27 but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Brothers and sisters, why do I go through all this explanation? It's very simple. Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is unsearchable. His wisdom is unfathomable. His power is beyond our wildest imagination. And this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present Lord took on flesh. He came in the form of a helpless baby to personally secure our salvation. 
Jesus lived in perfect righteousness. He died as our atoning sacrifice. He rose from the grave and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. He alone is perfectly qualified to serve as the Savior of man. So worship him. He is God. He is the Lord of glory. And even right now, do you understand, just to bring this application a little home, a little more personally, from his place of authority at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is personally sustaining you. In other words, the only thing that keeps the subatomic particles of the atoms that compose you the only thing holding them together right now in the form that you are is Christ. You have a Savior who's personal, who preserves and upholds you, who loves you, loves you so much that this one of power and glory and might and, and universal wonder, so much that he died to redeem you for himself. Is that a Lord who is worthy of worship? He is. He is. You know, this, this Lord of the universe is the one who bids us personally to come to his table as his children. Jesus himself instituted this ordinance for the church. And the idea, again, of, of sitting down to have a meal with someone, that represents that real reconciliation has happened. That where there was once a breach, where there, we were once enemies, that peace has been established. And Jesus Christ is that one who has established peace for us. That was the cry of the angels on the night of his birth, right? Peace on earth. And so if you are a believer in Christ here this morning, you are invited to this table. If we look at the end of Acts chapter 2, we see that, that the people were there listening to Peter preach that sermon on the first day of Pentecost. And it says when he was finished that there were those who received his word and they were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. That describes the church, the body of Christ. If you are here this morning and you have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted in him, and identified with a biblical church through baptism and participation with the body, then we welcome you to come to this table. You are our brother or sister in Christ. Don't feel like that you have to be perfect to come to this table. Listen, we are not qualified to come based on what we have done. We are qualified to come based on what Christ has done. And his mercy is abundant. Even if you've had a struggling week, run to Christ in repentance and come and be strengthened as you reflect upon what he has done to redeem you. But if you are here today without Christ, and that includes our young ones, our children, if you've not yet come to that place, allow these elements to pass by so that you do not eat and drink judgment to yourself because it is something for believers alone. But let's prepare our hearts, brothers and sisters, as our table servants now come.